America doesn't know how to sing the blues. And since America doesn't know how to sing the blues, we fall apart easily in times of trouble. And so I see our political divisiveness not as a cause, but actually the, the, an effect, right? The fall of empire, pending economic collapse. We've had to raise the debt ceiling yet again. These are real things that actually are materially weighing on us. We pretend we don't care. We pretend it doesn't matter. We have this jouissance in America, as I talk about in the book, where we simply try to enjoy. But until we deal with that pain, we're going to have a problem. And it's going to be hard to build a loving community. You're listening to Damn the Absolute, a podcast about our relationship to ideas. Produced by Eradicus. Here's your host, Jeffrey Howard. Welcome, friends, philosophers, and fellow practitioners of ideas. This is Season 2, Episode 5 of Damn the Absolute. It is the peak of summer here in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm slowly harvesting greens from the vegetable beds and cutting herbs to hang dry in our kitchen until the really big harvesting comes in the fall. We've more than doubled the size of our vegetable beds this year, and it's been really rewarding to see the apple, pear, and pawpaw trees branch out. Honestly, it's been transformative to experience the fruits of shifting a few more degrees toward creation and cultivation away from mere consumption. An unusually warm February followed by a late frost basically killed off most of our blueberry blossoms, so we've had very few to pick this summer. On top of that, one of our cherished barn cats went missing two months ago, and whether she found a new home or was sadly taken by the pack of restless coyotes who I hear howling all the time in the woods behind our barn, nobody really knows. Fortunately, we've adopted another rescue cat, and I imagine he'll learn his feline responsibilities soon enough. Before we settle into this conversation on racism, wounds, and building beloved community, I want to encourage you to submit an essay to Eradicus. While contributions are frequently and explicitly about pragmatist themes and pragmatism itself, the range of topics and perspectives we publish expand beyond that. We're interested in ideas you found personally fruitful and want to offer up to others in the Eradicus community. Share with us an idea that has helped you resolve a problem you face in your daily life. Radicus is always open to thoughtful submissions, and I also recommend you check out the submission guidelines at radicus.co for more details. Now, on to our show. School boards and state governments have been locked in intense debates over not only what counts as history, but whose history ought to be taught. Many of these wrestles orbit around events and cultural beliefs that the pragmatist philosopher Cornel West might refer to as catastrophes. Some voices are eager to bury, ignore, or sterilize many of the truly horrendous deeds that have happened in the United States. Slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, genocide, the exploitation of workers, and the list goes on. This inability to process the pain, guilt, or shame. Many of these events provoking people is arguably a major contributing factor to the polarization, dehumanization, and political corrosiveness we each face 
in both the national discourse and our local communities. Brad Elliott Stone, professor of philosophy and associate dean in the Bellarmine College of Liberal Arts at Loyola Marymount University, and Jacob Goodson, associate professor of philosophy at Southwestern College, both believe the answer can be found in building beloved community. They draw from the philosophies of Josiah Royce, Martin Luther King Jr., Cornell West, and William James. In their new book, Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World, they argue for ways in which we can heal the wounds inflicted on all of us by racism and economic injustices, both in the past and the present. Here are just a few of the questions we consider throughout our conversation. Should building beloved community be focused locally, nationally, or globally? What does it take to effectively respond to the cries of the wounded? And how can communities better work through the emotional pain of past wrongs and persistent injustices in the present? I hope you'll contribute to the conversation. Brad, Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Good to be here. Thank you. So we're kind of making a little bit of history here for Damn the Absolute. This is not only the first time we're having a repeat guest, which is Jacob Goodson. We are also having the first time we're having multiple guests at the same time. So thank you so much for joining. Very cool. Glad to be part of history. (laughs) As a rich part of our history, a beginning ritual of sorts, question I like to ask all guests. And Jacob, I'll give you a chance to answer a second because you've answered this before, which was what, two years ago when we had our, our first interview together. Brad, what is a viewpoint you ha- you've you held as an adult you were pretty confident or pretty certain wouldn't change that's actually shifted pretty dramatically for you? I guess for me, and this is going to be kind of a sad professional answer, <laughs> as it were, is I always thought I was kind of the maverick firebrand faculty member. And now that I find myself in the dean's office and you see the complexity of how universities operate, I've gained a compassion for administration that I just never thought I would ever have. Just the sheer amount of things that come through a dean's office, let alone a provost or a president's office at a relatively large university like Loyola Marymount. It's not super large, but it is large. We have about 8,000 students. You begin to realize, oh, there's a lot of decisions you have to make and you've got to stand by those decisions. And I just never appreciated that when I was on the faculty side of things. As we'll get into the show, I think that can maybe tie into walking in another person's shoes, becoming familiar with their wounds, the wounds of heading up a department. Yes. (laughs) And Jacob, what about for you? Well, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to preview and plug the current manuscript that I'm finishing right now, which is a, a manuscript on despair. And part of how I opened that book is to talk about how I spent most of my adult professional life really thinking that one of the goals in my vocation was to write in ways where I help people escape or overcome despair and What I've come to realize in the past few years is that there actually are very reasonable forms of despair. And so the book is on trying to explain and explore those reasonable forms of despair. And that's, for me, that's a, that's a big change of mind. I, uh, last time I was on the podcast with you, we talked about my, my book on Wardy. And for a long time, I really felt 
and that Wardian spirit that philosophers should always be philosophers of hope. And I, I still consider myself that, but I, I wanted to, this book represents kind of my slowing down and really thinking through the relationship between despair and hope rather than just moving from despair to hope too quickly. That's one thing I've really appreciated whenever I've read something by you, Jacob, which both of you have collaborated a lot with each other. So it's probably a little bit of both of you in this, but you write from such a deeply personal and compassionate place that it is refreshing because as both of you have seen and commented on, philosophy can be so lost at times in the abstract and your writing is very academic, but you're always starting it out and reminding us of the very human place that it comes from. And I think that's very much in the same with this book that we're going to talk about today, Building Beloved Community in a Wounded World. I would love to have each of you tell me a little bit more about the personal place that your contributions to this book are coming from. For me, the main personal place is... As I mentioned in one of the chapters, uh, Charles Cunningham Seabrook was a professor of mine and had introduced me to the work of Miguel de Unamuno. And so one of the interesting things, we were talking about this tragic you know, sense of life and all of that. It really gave me a moment to write something uh, on Unamuno. I'd done an article on Unamuno back in 2003. <laughs> and so it was great to get back to kind of my uh, personal philosopher roots. Unumuno was the first philosopher I read that really seemed personal. And I could really see myself in his philosophical writings. And then to develop that in this book, uh, connecting it with Cornell West, who was another person that I had connected myself to even before I knew he was a philosopher, really bringing them together was a really enriching experience for me in writing this book. What about you, Jacob? I think that's an excellent question. And I have two different answers. The first answer is closer to how Brad answered, which is it was an opportunity for me to write very different than I had before about William James's impact on my thinking. I had always tried to write almost strictly as uh, an objective scholar, which is ironic given James <laughs> tells us not to do that. I'd written a lot about James, but really trying to keep a kind of personal separation in most of what I'd written. And both Phil, our third co-author, and Brad really encouraged me with this project. Just, just say what you think needs to be said in terms of James's wisdom for these questions. And so I worried less about getting James right in terms of his own internal logic and really let myself think about why, why am I still reading William James? What is it about his work that I keep going back to that has become second nature? How does he help me think about my own vocation, which I, I spend a few paragraphs talking about James and the vocation of the philosopher, but then also how does he help us think about living the ethical life and what does that mean within particular communities and within kind of our local settings. So that's the first answer. The second answer is in the pandemic, this was a pandemic project and it was very personal in terms of fulfilling a deep human need that I had to be engaged with Phil and Brad on a weekly basis. And 
I don't want to overplay the word salvific, but in some ways, this project was salvific at a time in my life that was very, I mean, all of us were experiencing this, but very isolated, very lonely. And I remember in a kind of almost childlike way, just being very excited each week that we met, like an hour before we would meet, I, I, I could tell that my energy was finally turning around and that there was going to be deep discussion and personal connection. And and so the just the, the book itself, the project itself became a kind of lifeline for me in, in the time that the whole globe was, was feeling isolated and lonely. You already mentioned William James's strong pushback against abstract philosophy and pushback of the that that sterile approach that some of us get caught in in philosophy. And I think both of you, as you've already mentioned, like you really bring it back to this human place of you talked about it being a salvific project for you. And I I love that you bring both of you bring that back into the philosophical discourse. And obviously, it makes sense with community. You kind of built this small community. The three of you working on this book. Beloved community for me was actually a term that I had first encountered, and I know I'm not alone in this. Hearing from Martin Luther King Jr., and one could probably say he really helped popularize it. He is, I think, Brad. You had mentioned when he was and he was in school, he was exposed to Josiah Royce, who, oddly enough, we've spoken about very, very little on this podcast, which is ironic given the title of the podcast, but. He was the one who coined the term "beloved," the beloved community. Brad, what are what are the, a few of the characteristics of the beloved community? Well, uh, one of the neat things in this book is that Jacob and I give very different views about what those characteristics are. Uh, so, one key piece of the beloved community for me, and now trying to stay true to Royce uh, instead of kind of my critique of that view is that we have to build communities of memory of particular sorts so that we can then build common notions of a future we would want to have. And so we have to get good at telling our story, getting our story straight amongst ourselves so that we become, first of all, community in the truest sense of having a shared loyalty of a certain sort. But then a beloved one, which says that Whatever that future is, it's skewing toward the good. And therefore, if truth is a species of the good, as we say in pragmatism, right, this kind of truthfulness about the past, we actually set up the conditions for us to live into a future that would be, in King's case, the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the United States of America. For Royce, something more like the Kantian uh, kingdom of ends, but of course, um, like you, I came to the term through King. And so it really is that moment when all of God's children will be living in harmony, just as they will in heaven, right? So the, the dream that King has, I always love to remind people, isn't really a dream about the United States in the 1960s. He's dreaming of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. But he thinks that's a dream in the American dream. That the, the quote, quote, American dream is that going all the way back to the city on a hill sermons mm -hmm. 
in the early American scripture, as I call it, you have this idea that America could be the place where that kind of kingdom of God could actually take place. And, and Jacob, you have a little bit of a, a wrinkle, slightly different wrinkle to that as well. I think I'm closer to Royce and I think that I'm that I'm willing to embrace more of the universality of the vision for beloved community. And so for me, when we talk about beloved community, we're, we're talking about five different characteristics. And there's certainly some overlap here with what with what Brad said. But the first characteristic would be that the beloved community embodies universal love. And second, that it serves as an ideal to constantly strive towards. And I really embrace that notion of ideal and Royce's not I don't embrace Royce's full notion of absolute idealism but I do embrace that part of it and then the third characteristic is and here uh, Brad mentioned this is that the beloved community offers a modern version of the medieval idea of a kingdom of God and of course that is what Dr. King picks up on as well and then the beloved community requires all people to live by faith grace and love and then lastly the beloved community represents the greatest hope possible for humanity now, I, I think there is a reasonable way to read Royce that he thinks that this will be achieved. And one of my differences from Royce is that this is an ideal to strive for, that we also need to realize that it will never be achieved. But just because mm -hmm. it won't be achieved doesn't mean that we can't have ideals that we still strive, uh, strive toward. And so when Brad critiques me in this book as being an idealist, that's, that's the critique that he's making. And I think that argument, as Brad said, I think that argument itself is almost worth the cost of the book because I think we're very, we have similar goals and similar visions uh, and, and our, you know, our friendship is based on that. But the way that we express those come out with, with some really substantial and interesting differences. So is it fair to say, Jacob, your wrinkle to it is a little bit more of an, an idealism or a little bit more universalist, whereas Brad, yours may be a little bit more, more local or local um, historical material you use uh, Cornel West now dare we say presidential candidate Cornel West that that is uh, right words more <laughs> of a rut gut world right that the beloved community is going to be formed out of what Sly and the Family Stone would refer to as everyday people versus kind of dare I say platonic or content mm -hmm. ideals beloved communities are made of people and people are always local historically determined uh, under material conditions and things like that. And that will vary from place to place. So, you know, one of the themes in this book that we come back to in the end of the book in the third part is America has a history of racism that you're not going to find in every country because America didn't do slavery the way other countries did slavery. And so there are some very local, particular, unique to America things about race that if America is going to strive toward a beloved community, it's going to have to resolve because half the dispute about race, as we see in certain states right now, like Florida and Texas, where the question is, what can be counted as our shared history? But if you're trying to erase key material parts of the very history, then we're not going to be able to have beloved community. And so I can't go straight to ideals. Dare I say, I would gladly become an idealist if we were all materially clear with each other. But since we haven't done that yet, we have to do the dirty work of material history.
ain't nobody's dirty business how my baby treat me. Nobody's business but mine. Both of you are using the concept of the beloved community to diagnose and really focus in on this present historical political moment. What defines the present political moment in the United States? Racism has, has always been with us in this country. And I think it's foolish to say that it came back in 2015 or 2016. What I do think is different about the last decade is the extreme and the intense political divisiveness where we have people who refuse to be friends or neighborly with one another in this country because of their political differences. I'm sure that was always the case on the surface, but I think that's the case more deeply now. And so for me, thinking about the ideals that the beloved community brings about and how it provides a kind of rule for engagement and with our neighbors and with our family members and loved ones, I think is is deeply needed right now because we are refusing to engage with one another, not only peacefully, but where people just refuse to engage if because of the, being Democrat or Republican. And for me, that's hopeless if I don't think about ways to get out of it. And so to diagnose the current the current moment is to think about how our political divisiveness leads to a kind of hopelessness and the language of the beloved community is one way there's lots of other ways but is one way to kind of work our way out of that i think and, and to find something to be hopeful for in our everyday relationships and to double down on this fact a lot of that divisiveness comes because we're unable to admit the suffering. Yes. That famous James Baldwin quote, the reason people hold on to hate is because if they got rid of hate, they would have to deal with the pain. Mm. And so step one is to talk about America as a wounded country. We are marching toward economic collapse. I don't simply see the Trump um, administration as the cause of any of that. That's simply a symptom. When we talk about the fall of empire, uh, this is part of the fall of empire. We are losing our position in world spirit, to be very Hegelian about it, as much as I tend not to be an idealist. But if we're talking about world spirit, we are about to leave the American episteme, right? As we brought about the end of Europe, uh, we're now at the end of America as the definer of the world. In the 20th century, America was that. We were world spirit. The world spirit was American. And so you could be, for example, Democrat or Republican, because all you were disagreeing on was how to do something. But now that we don't have that position and we are in free fall and people can't pay their rent and the cost of everything has gone up and you look at these gas prices, you know, and all of these things. Now it's no longer the problem of how. The different parties are now talking about what, what to do to try to get back to something we might have never been. But whatever we are now, we've got to come to terms with and deal with. And what we saw, particularly in the pandemic, was not just the isolation of individuals, but something like the isolation of ideas. So that people then echo chambered in their isolated worlds. And neither party could just say, yeah, boy, 
we're facing a global pandemic that could kill a significant percentage of us all. Let's talk about that. Whereas, as Cornel West said himself after 9-11, similarly, America doesn't know how to sing the blues. And since America doesn't know how to sing the blues, we fall apart easily in times of trouble. And so I see our political divisiveness not as a cause, but actually the, the, an effect, right? The fall of empire, pending economic collapse. We've had to raise the debt ceiling yet again. These are real things that actually are materially weighing on us. We pretend we don't care. We pretend it doesn't matter. We have this jouissance in America, as I talk about in the book, where we simply try to enjoy. But until we deal with that pain, we're going to have a problem. And it's going to be hard to build a beloved community. There's this through line I'm I'm hearing in this, and that's the wrestle about history. And you connecting that a beloved community is about a shared memory. And that's obviously, to any of us listening and participating, so much of the issue, as you mentioned, certain states trying to ban certain books or discourage certain parts of American history that either they think is not important or inaccurate or whatever. And that's the wrestle and we're divided. And as you pointed out, I think you're right. that America doesn't know how to sing the blues in a way. Like we have not properly mourned and gone through that process. I think when a lot of people look at what Germany did post-World War II and how they approach their incredibly dark history. And that's something that the United States absolutely can learn about or learn from, right? Totally agree. Yeah. I think for voice, it's also important that you cannot be a community of hope or progress if you're first don't become a community of memory. And he's very clear about that connection that one follows the other. And so when you bring up the states that are banning books or preventing African-American history being taught, one of the things that we, that a Warsian can say about those states is that the K through 12 education is becoming literally hopeless, right? From a Warsian perspective, because if they're not going to allow for a proper memory, then that means that there's not going to be a, an opportunity or a chance for real legitimate hopefulness. And so I'm glad you brought that up. And we were interviewed by someone else who also brought that up and encouraged us to write on that next, uh, you know, the significance of what's going on in the in particular states like Florida and Texas. So I do think it's a significant philosophical problem of what's going on there. And I am also remembering these were conversations Jacob and I had a couple of years ago when we talked about Rorty, who Rorty dedicates an entire book to addressing this wrestle over history. And he draws from James Baldwin, Achieving Our Country, for those who aren't familiar. Go and listen to the conversation with Jacob. There's even another episode, uh, the inaugural episode, Damn the Absolute, where we really dig deeper into that book. But I think a lot of those wrestles are there. Brad, we're going to, I want to dig into Royce, which I think it's about time we gave him his due on this podcast. He was a, a figure in American philosophy who's, Kind of gets grouped in with the pragmatist, but he's really, and sometimes considered one, even though he's really, he's an idealist and he's really the the beloved friend and constant foil to William James. I think it would be beneficial to listeners if you were to give us a little bit of an, uh, an overview of his notion of absolute idealism, try and connect it for us to the beloved community. Well, for that, I'm actually going to pass to Jacob who's much better at explaining Royce than I am. But it is, suffice 
to point out how important, and Cornel West actually has a wonderful lecture that he gave at the uh, Society for the Advancement of American Philosophy many years ago on how important Royce was to James. And James definitely is the, the figure that got better known, unless you live here in Los Angeles, of course, on the campus of UCLA, you have Royce Hall, uh, which is, of course, for Josiah Royce, even though he taught at Cal Berkeley and not UCLA, but the UC dedicated the building to him on the UCLA campus. So Jacob will say more about absolute idealism, and then I could say something about uh, my critique of it. Brad can damn the absolute. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hard to put Royce's theory into non-philosophical terms, but I will I will do my best here. What Royce was trying to do in the in the 1880s was to come up with philosophical explanations for how error and falsehood occur. And he was really worried and concerned that philosophers spent so much time on truth that they weren't able to fully account for the ways in which we misfire when it comes to truth. And so when we talk about his absolute idealism, we're talking about how does error and falsehoods actually occur because they seem to occur a lot more than the truth, according to mm -hmm. Royce. And he comes up with this notion that there's kind of two layers. There's the otherworldly layer, which Royce is a full monothe Christian monotheist. So one thing that he argues, and this is this gets us to the absolute part, one thing that he argues is that there is an, an absolute knower. That's, that's Royce's uh, term for God. That when we say that this absolute knower is omniscient, is all-knowing, what we mean by that is that every truth that exists is contained in this absolute knower. And so when we're speaking falsely or when we're speaking in error or when or even when we act unethically for Royce, we are refusing, I guess would be the best verb to use, we are refusing the knowledge and the truth that exists in the mind of this absolute knower. So that's the that's the very otherworldly divine part of Royce's theory. So on the human side, which is more about what the idealism part is, for Royce, there are both ideas and ideals that humans should hold themselves up towards. And of course, that relates to what's in the divine mind. But ultimately for Royce, when we speak in error or when we speak falsely, or even when we act immorally, we are acting irrationally. Some of your listeners will be reminded of Immanuel Kant's famous claim in the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals, to act immorally is to act irrationally. And Royce really picks up on that part of, of Kantian idealism. And how this connects to the beloved community is that you cannot form a beloved community if you first don't deal with, and this goes back to our discussion earlier about communities of, of memory, if you first don't deal with the results of irrational behavior and irrational speech, and the results of that, Royce calls the cries of the wounded, right? So people are wounded for Royce, not simply because of this ethical because of ethical misbehavior, but because of um, the way in which this grand metaphysical view of the world works. And so people suffering and oppression happen because for voice, because people refuse to speak truthfully, to act morally, which means that they refuse to allow themselves to have the same 
kind of knowledge or the same kind of truth that exists in God's mind. I am all for the ideals part. I think we should have ideals as human beings. I don't think you need the absolute knower part, I argue, in, in this book in order to get to the kind of human ideals part. And I think that my main difference from Moise is very Jamesian, that I think we can talk about all this with the big caveat that we're never going to achieve the kind of full truth or the full hope or the full beloved community that Moise envisions. I think we can keep the ideals and the understanding. I don't think it's an either or and the understanding that we can strive towards those ideals, knowing that we're going to fail because we're going to keep committing errors. We're going to, we're mm-hmm. going to keep, we're going to, we're going to keep falling short on Moise's terms. But I think if you don't hold those ideals out, then my worry is that we end up in some kind of nihilistic despair or, or just a, a society based on indifference. So now Brad can damn the absolute. Yes. Well, <laughs> hilariously, first, um, let's modify the absolute. And so one of the things that Cornel West does in his essay on Royce, uh, philosophy in the sense of the tragic, is he describes the absolute as the fact that things done are irrevocable. And so one way to think of the absolute would be to say, things once done cannot be taken back. Or as a, a famous set of uh, books on physics, talking about fundamental theories of physics, one of them is there are some physical processes once done cannot be reversed. And so that's absolute. But of course, it's not absolute in that sense of an otherworldliness. It's not an absolute in the sense of uh, there being some absolute knower or God or something like that. Simply, it's enough to talk about the absolute in terms of the irrevocability of the past. And this is why communities of memory are going to be so important, is because those are absolute. The past, as Henri Bergson would remind us, is an increasingly larger and larger cone as time passes. The whole weight of time Mm -hmm. we have to be able to deal with and not ignore. And so when we talk about race or American history, we can't ignore that huge cone of the past, which is now 200 and. 46, 40, it's going to be 247 years. We've got to account for that. And given that the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act is like 1965, most of that cone denied liberty and freedom and dignity to a quite materially important group in the very cone. We can't pretend that history didn't happen. Hmm. So on the absolute side, there is some value in the absolute in that sense, but it can't be otherworldly. Almost you have to treat it like a physics process. The idealism problem, of course, is the universalism problem. And what we usually mean by universal is simply my local particular treated as the experience everyone else has. And that's just not the case. As I love to say, you know, I live in California uh, presently, but I grew up in Kentucky. and there's no one United States, it seems, uh, you know, uh, things that would be so obvious. Well, things that are obvious to me as a Kentuckian just make no sense out here in California. And so there's no need to then say there's some grand American unified view of anything. We are a confederation of states, after all, with our own local flavors and varieties. And so when we treat things as universal, what we've usually done is taken one particular local thing 
and presuppose that everyone else was on board with it. And that's just has never been the case. So it's not really that idealism, dare I say, is wrong. It's just that it has never happened. Hello, friends. Jeffrey here doing that podcaster thing and inviting you to rate and review Damn the Absolute wherever you listen to podcasts. It means a lot to me and the editorial team at Eradicus, who produces the podcast. Plus, it helps us continue bringing you meaningful conversations around fruitful ideas. Enjoy the rest of the show. Royce has another term that features prominently in the book, the cries of the wounded. We've talked a lot about oppression, American history of racism and slavery, which feature prominently in your analysis in the book. I want to connect that with the quote you brought up, Brad, from Cornell West, America doesn't know how to sing the blues. Mm. This is a question for you, Jake. There's a quote that philosopher Sammy Pilstrom gives about William James's view on pragmatism. And in the, the quote, he says, pragmatism is primarily a philosophy not for the quote-unquote the healthy mind person who deliberately excludes evil from her or his field of vision, but for the sick soul who views evil as the very essence of life and of the world. I'd love for you to expound upon that a little bit. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, I mean, this is one of the reasons I'm really drawn to William James, which again, this book allowed me to really think about why am I still drawn to, to this late 19th century thinker. I think what Pilstrom means is that what you need for pragmatism to even get off the ground is it has to address not only problems, but what Cornell West and others call catastrophes. Right? And I think James would ag agree with this notion. Pragmatism does not concern itself with paper doubts or with doubts that philosophers come up with. Pragmatism concerns itself with actual, real, devastating problems. Right? And so the connection between being a sick soul and the cries of the wounded and pragmatism is simply that pragmatism is a method that is always responding to what Royce calls the cries of the wounded. It's always responding to those who are suffering, to those who are oppressed either systematically or individually. It's always engaged and responsive in that sense. And Pilstrom's argument is that for James, you have to already be a sick soul to even be able to hear the cries of the wounded. And I, I reverse that argument. I argue that listening to the cries of the wounded actually turns one into a sick soul because you realize that at the end of the day, all the work that you do listening to the cries of the wounded and responding and trying to offer, you know, lowercase s forms of salvation, all that, all that, all that, that we never will actually achieve the kind of ideal society that, that voice thinks that we can achieve and that, but for me, the big difference between Royce and James, which keeps coming up in this conversation, is that the grind's never going to end for James. The, the the blues never come to an end for James, right? But that doesn't mean that you don't keep working, right? You work on yourself, you work in your community, you keep responding to those who are crying, you keep trying to become a better listener. Uh, I mean, James, in, in one of the essays I discuss, he defines the whole vocation of philosophy, the, the only thing philosophers must be doing is learning ourselves how to listen to the cries of the wounded and teaching our students how to listen to those cries, right? So James picks up this phrase from Royce and applies it to, this is what philosophers ought to be doing. 
And I, I, I find myself so convicted by that. And knowing that we have to be able to listen and teach how to listen, but also that deep realization that suffering's not going to end. Again, to use the, the language of the blues, the blues will, will not come to a finality, but that doesn't prevent us, that shouldn't prevent us from working, working in the sense of, of what pragmatism means by that word. There's one one thing that really strikes me in this is, for those not familiar with the terms, healthy-minded, six souls from William James's classic book, The Variety of Religious Experience. And basically what he's saying is there are some people who have a, an approach to the religious life that it's sort of, everything's going to come out clean in the wash. Ultimately, everything kind of works well, and it tends to be sort of a maybe a rosier view of the world. Whereas the six soul are those who, they're more attuned to the struggle. They're, they're going to be more attuned to the cries of the wounded. And it's interesting because pragmatism is a quintessential American philosophy, if, despite the incoherence perhaps of American, but <laughs> American culture is seen as very optimistic in this sort of way, at least maybe it used to be, maybe it's shifting, but it's interesting that William James brings up this dichotomy and most people think of America maybe in this more healthy minded, but as you mentioned earlier, Brad, America does not know how to sing the blues. And on top of maybe trying to be more pragmatic or pragmatist here, it's we need to be able to sing the blues. We need to hear the cries of the wounded. We need to be able to walk in other people's shoes. We need to address and find that common history. And Brad, you you talk about a lot of this in the, this concept of the tragic sense of life, which I, I think goes back to Sidney Hook, who is a pragmatist philosopher of the past century. And he's so focused on the practical wisdom of philosophy. He again wants it to focus on what can reduce the pains of existence, if you will. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that tragic sense. Yes. Well, Tragic Sense of Life is actually the name of the book by Miguel de Unamuno in 1912, a Spanish writer coming out of the end of the Spanish empire and is kind of the predecessor for figures like Jean-Paul Sartre, one of those minor figures, early existentialists. He was one of the first people to really write on Kierkegaard, for example, and things like that, uh, that would connect He's kind of the connecting tissue of the existentialism of the 19th century to the existentialism of the 20th century. So Tragic Sense of Life for Unamuno and has to do with the realities of flesh and bo bone existence, as he calls it, carne y hueso, where you are born, you live, you struggle, you die. And that is the the, the guaranteed sequence of, of human life. Now, against Hook... I argue that that's not itself tragic for Unamuno. What he thinks is tragic is that we have to take out of that mortal existence, we have to take that mortal existence and somehow turn it into eternity and become immortal. And there's only two ways to do this, of course, religion or philosophy. So whereas religion gives you kind of a kingdom of God and a mortal soul and all of these kinds of things, philosophy gives you, of course, the universality of reason and the eternity of truth and, and, and things like that. And of course, Unamuno is critical of both of those things because he does, as he puts it, what he wants is not that, like his ideas are eternal. He wants to not die. Hmm. You know, the old line from uh, Woody Allen, although uh, not a person that people would want to quote as much anymore, but he had that famous line, you know, a lot of, a lot of filmmakers want to be immortal uh, through their artworks 
I want to be immortal by not dying. So as a result, every decision and every action in finite space and time has consequence for us, and it matters. And so philosophy should not go abstract. So Unumuno is talking about concrete existence. You see this in the French tradition with Gabriel Marcel, uh, similarly. This idea that before we can go, as I kind of said earlier, before we can go into the abstract universe, we've got to solve concrete space and time problems. And so the tragic sense of life for Unumuno is that we don't have a lot of time to do it. And so we want to make the world better, right? American philosophy is not about optimism. It's about meliorism. How can I take a situation and make it better? So the tragic sense in that, from the Unamuno point of view, is that I don't have an eternity to do that. So what am I going to do in this moment, in this part of time, to, to affect, hopefully, something that's better? Now, for Hook, the tragic is that every decision made, kind of like this notion of the absolute, every decision made has a consequence and has a price. Usually one good against a different good, a good against a right, or a right against a right. And we got to pick and we got to choose. So we never actually go to apathy or indolence. What we really do is we make choices and then we have to sometimes revise choices but some choices get made that makes it harder to then go back, et cetera. And so when we talk politically about this and we say, oh, that's going to take us back 50 years, we don't simply mean that it will take us back to that moment in time when that was normal. It's that it would also then undo 50 years of work that got us to our present moment. So it's not just the, oh, we're going back to the past. We would actually have to destroy all that time between those two. And that's what people usually mean by that. So tragedies of life simply means that we're all going to be wounded. We're, we're all suffering because no one gets their way all the time. And the world doesn't cooperate, as I say about James Baldwin in a later chapter, right? The world does not cooperate with us in these ways. And we again and again somehow think the world's going to cooperate with us. It doesn't. It, in nature, it doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way in us. And so we're all wounded. So racism isn't just a problem for non-white people in America. Racism affects white people. It wounds all of us. And that's why it has to become part of our shared history. We are actually all affected by it. So we have to sing the blues. Now, one difference between me and Jacob is what I think the blues do. So yes, the blues indeed articulate sufferings and struggle. But as I love to remind everyone, the first song on the blues album tells you why you got fired from work. The last song on the blues album says how you're going to cheat with your boss's wife. Right? There's tragic and comic. Mm. And it's very important to talk about the tragic comic, right? That Black people were able to take an absolute absurd situation and from a true existentialist point of view, the really only authentic option that the slaves had was suicide. But they created an entire culture instead. And even as you see Jim Crow America, Black people invented a way to be American. Black people are very American. Mm -hmm. And 
then gave those gifts back to America itself. So a lot of mainstream American culture just is African-American culture. But it was forged out of struggle. But it's available for everyone. That's why I'm against standpoint epistemology. I'm against people who say, well, you're not Black and therefore you can't talk about race. No, you're affected by it. You have something to say about it. We all need to sing the blues. True. But it's not always clinging the banjo and talking about how bad things are. It also says we're going to go down to the juke joint. We're going to get drunk. We're going to break all the windows. <laughs> and as Helen Wolf reminds us, and when the snuff juice fills the air, sorry, when the fish scent fills the air, there'll be snuff juice everywhere. <laughs> we'll pitch a wang dang doodle all night long as well. And so singing the blues means taking the world as it comes. We'll get our way sometimes, sometimes not. Ice Cube, we called a good day he had, but he also can then tell you about the death of his friends at the hands of the cops. Both exist, both are part of our tragic sense of life. Maybe this is an unfair question, but I think you were leaning into this a little bit. With with the beloved community, we're trying to create a community of memory. It's a shared memory we have together. And you talk about the tragic comet culture that is developed in the African-American communities that is very clearly American. But there are so many debates around whether it's concerns of cultural appropriation or who gets to claim aspects of culture. How... Or maybe what does it look like to you for folks who are not African-American to kind of share, kind of take that into a shared memory of this is all of our culture in a way that mirrors becoming the beloved community? Yeah, I keep saying sometimes I'm going to write a book of just all the what I call liberal speak that is philosophically problematic. And one of them has to do with appropriation. I mean, let's start with Black culture itself. How is, of course, it's appropriative. You take situations that you're in and then you respond to it. So there are definite aspects of European culture that uh, Africans in America took on but made theirs in a certain way, right? So for me, my worry is people talk about appropriation as if that somehow connects with assimilation. I'm definitely against assimilation. But what most people call appropriation, I would call, to stay with the musical metaphors, jazz. <laughs> jazz, that wonderful mixture of European uh, harmonics and melodics with African rhythmic sensibilities, right? That's America. America is a place of fusion. So I would have a problem if somebody said, I'm going to take on African-American culture and treat it like a fetish or some kind of exotic object. No, take on African-American culture because it's American culture. Mm. And if we do that, then I'm less worried. But simply say, oh, only Black people can participate, for example, in, in Black things, denies the material history of Black people, first of all, because whether one likes it or not, Black culture 
is inside of white culture. You cannot be white in the United States. And this is, and of course, white was invented in the United States, by the way. There is no such thing as white people without black people. And so black people are already inside that whiteness. And so it's already that same culture. The same culture produced white people and black people. And therefore, we're not really appropriating from each other. I do have different problems when we treat usually about the exoticism of things. So I do think, you know, when we handle non-American things a particular way, I do worry about appropriation. So, you know, Cinco de Mayo, for example, and things like that. That's just, that's just not an American holiday. So I just don't know what we're doing with it. Meanwhile, Juneteenth, everyone should be getting in on because that's an American holiday. It happened mm-hmm. here in America. And it took hilariously all of us for it to have happened. And so when we become a community of memory in that sense, we can realize we're all affected and we all then have to make decisions and they're not going to clear anyone's name in that sense. But that's the thing that like Baldwin notes about whiteness. Whiteness wants to be innocent of everything. And they just, it's just, that's just not true. It's not materially true. And it doesn't mean that white people have to then beat themselves up, you know, as Jacob knows, the one group of people I hate kind of most of all, I should say, irritates me most of all, are, you know, over-sympathetic white liberals who now want to kind of beat themselves up over whiteness. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, just black people don't like that. That's not what black people are wanting from white people. <laughs> uh, that's not what black people are asking for. Just be cool. Quit being white, <laughs> as uh, Tommy Curry would say. How, what should white people do? Just stop being white <laughs> about it. But in a weird way, white liberals have doubled down on that. <laughs> oh, I'm ashamed to be white. That's just the dumbest sounding sentence to my ears. Because what you need to do instead of being ashamed is take responsibility. Or when we talk about famine, uh, to give a non-racialized example, talk about famine and students will say, oh, but I feel so guilty talking about the fact that there are people on the planet who don't have food to eat. And I just threw away enough food last week to feed an entire city. And I just remind them, gee, I wish that guilt could fill those little children's stomachs. (laughs) We just have certain emotions that aren't very useful. And, and guilt and shame are, are two of those. And so now the new liberal whiteness is, oh, to feel so bad about being white that you become annoying to black people because black people don't want to be at the party with you telling them about um, how shamed they are to be white. No, get on the dance floor. What I'm hearing is like the the pragmatic approach here is to find an action, right? There's the less fruitful emotions that it's fine to feel for a moment, but like, what is the action you're doing to make this world a little bit better? Yes. In this case, dancing. Dance. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if you, if you do the Dougie, you're not culturally appropriating. You're setting your body free. <laughs> <laughs> I think Cornell West would agree with much of this. We've been bringing up Cornell a lot. I've been wanting to talk about him for a long time. Both of you have written extensively about his ideas. Um, obviously, he's very topical right now, having recently announced his run for president, which 
feel free if you want to comment on that. I don't necessarily want to force that upon you, but feel free to offer any thoughts on that. But I would love to hear either of you share a little bit on Cornel West. He he was a student of Richard Rorty. Rorty was a mentor. He definitely consumed and took a lot of Rorty with him, but he had a little bit of a reaction to Rorty's neopragmatism, has his own spin on pragmatism, which is prophetic pragmatism. What is that? I'll take a first stab and we'll keep it brief. I, I think that I think what West gets really right, I know just don't think people think things right, but I think what I think what West puts his hand on is that for pragmatism to operate in the late 20th and early 21st century, that it has to have some kind of not just cultural critique, but uh, really a, a prophetic voice that is identifying particular catastrophes. That's one of West's favorite words. A prophetic voice that's identifying catastrophes to go back to what Brad just said, where we all take responsibility for these catastrophes and then we also all do something about it. Right. And so for I think part of West's frustration with with Wardy and perhaps with some or even other uh, pragmatists is that um, I would put Dewey in here is that they're really good about naming particular problems and then having kind of small doses of action at the kind of institutional or even political level for west what what how i read west is that we have to have a kind of pro- prophetic diagnosis of every area of our shared life together and then we have to be able to take responsibility for the ways in which we contribute to those catastrophes or problems and then we have to have kind of two uh, two levels of solutions. I mean, West does believe in institutions. He does believe in politics. He wouldn't run for president if he if he didn't. But he also, and I think he does a much better job of, about this than Wardy or, or Dewey or Wardy or Dewey do. It also has to be there has to be actions and solutions in our everyday lives, and that there has to be both a, a top down and a ground up mechanisms for pragmatism to actually work. Um, and I think West articulates this probably better than any pragmatist. I, I think James James really emphasizes the the bottom up, right? The, the ground up method and Dewey's more top down. And um, I think West really does capture kind of the spirit and the vision of pragmatism because he's, he says both of these have to be working simultaneously, right? We can't just let one, we can't let one win out over the other. Uh, but catastrophes are multi-leveled and we need to be dealing with them with all of our possible tools available to us. Is there anything you want to add to that, Brad? Yeah, just to say, I mean, perfect pragmatism, you, you could say Rortian neopragmatism plus a real critical eye toward the to the voices and practices, more particularly the practices of those who have been offering the solution. And so in a previous book, Jacob and I wrote, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism, uh, I mentioned that the prophetic in the sense of prophetic pragmatism has to, of course, include the Black church and Black politics. And so we, every so many years, an event happens, which I now in my work call just the great race event. Every so many years, there's a great race event, uh, the most recent one being George Floyd in 2020. Uh, before that, it would have been, you know, uh, Rodney King in 92, uh, things like that. And, you know, they happen not once per 10 years, but every so many years, 
you had Trayvon Martin and things like that. Just these little great race events. And then America acts like this is a brand new problem over and over again because we don't have a culture of memory. Mm. And so we, what many well-meaning white people do is they then do the thing they did the last time there was a great race event. Oh, I've got to work on myself. Oh, I'm going to find whatever the great new book about racism is for white people. And there's always a book conveniently at that moment of, hey, white people, here's what you need to be doing to not be racist. This time it was Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. But, you know, each moment has one of those. And I'm going to read that and then I will feel bad about being white until we get to the next great race event. That's not African-American history where actual things then happen and have been accumulating over the years. So students, every generation of students loves to give demands to their university. The items on that list are the same items you would find in 1967, 1968, 1978, 1985, 1992, 1998, 2004, 2009, right? It's the exact same list. And so part of my argument is Black people already told you what the answer is. America just won't listen to it. So prophetic pragmatism wants in part to make those actions intelligent, right? To not just say, oh, well, that's just the way Black people respond to things. Black people have actually tried to meliorize the situation, not just for themselves, but for everyone. Why don't we actually listen to it? And there's an intelligence there. And Wes does this because for Rorty, Everyone's language is contingent, right? And I can just replace vocabularies with another vocabulary. So there's no moral push to pick one path versus another. But Wes does believe that there are paths we have not explored that we ought to explore in a way that Rorty would never make such a commitment. We have just a few minutes here. So I'm going to kind of give you both a chance to answer this last question. We really like to leave on a practical note, surprisingly, for those who feel a little bit of a wake up call and realizing, okay, I need to stop feeling guilty. I need to act, whatever it is. What are some really concrete things that we can each do to help get closer to realizing the beloved community and in particular in our own local communities, which is kind of where I lean in my own biases there, but what should all of us be doing? I mean, I would say a deliberate healing of the results of the political divisiveness. Right? And I, I, in my own local community here, this is a conversation that we're having pretty actively. And sometimes it's more despairing, sometimes it's more hopeful. But I, I think that we need to, going back to Baldwin's insight, we need, we need to let people identify the pain that's behind their fear and hate. And we need to be able to talk about that. We need to be able to listen without trying to correct. And we need to be able to really be open and honest about how we all share kind of economic struggles. And instead of blaming this administration or that administration for those struggles, we just need to listen to one another and listen to what our needs are. And I think we can do a lot of in a kind of Jamesian and Westian spirit, I think we could do a lot of active solutions for the economic struggles people are having that are really based in in locality. 
you know, whether it's extending food banks or extending library services, I, I really do feel like, and, and Brad mentioned this earlier, that the plight of the economy is, is a shared suffering. And, you know, those who escape that plight are what we kind of call the 1%, which, which is too sloppy, but a lot of us are, are struggling. And I think that we can find some kind of, I don't, you uh, kind of soft unity around that shared around grocery prices, right? And start to talk about that as a way to find deliberate healing that's based upon, or that's been the result of our our loyalty to political parties rather than our loyalty to our neighbors. Jacob, are you when you refer to these moments of healing and conversations being had? Are these happening? Are you referring to in church congregations, in school meetings? local community meetings, town halls, like where the, the physical spaces these are happening or sh- maybe should be happening? Yeah, no, I, I mean, in, in my own local community, it, it happens at certain congregations, but it also happens at the brewery. And then we have a pretty active rotary club that really tries to engage with legal and social matters. And then our, our local library, Winfield Public Library, has started offering services to immigrants that come to our small town that has that has done a lot of work and, and provide a lot of help and service for people who feel alienated and estranged and just trying to be a college student or trying to work for a factory and has provided times for the community to come talk about immigration and talk about the things that we celebrate about that and the things that cause us fear about that. And so those those kind of spaces, whether they're the formal spaces of the Rotary Club or the Winfield Public Library or the informal spaces of the brewery, I think are are very hopeful. Even though sometimes when you hear the concerns of some people, you you might feel despair. I think just the fact that the conversations are going on for me provide a, a kind of glimpse of hope. Go ahead, Brad. The place I suspect I overlap most with Jacob would be brewery. Uh, as a place we are seeing a decline of social life in america even though every town and city in america is now culturally diverse for example so gone is the gee i we have a homogenous community nobody has that anymore in, in any city with enough people so just do things together I'm, I'm much more low level i'm not really interested at this moment in conversations so much but I gave a hint earlier, get on the dance floor. <laughs> and this is very James Baldwin. We have to eat together. We have to listen to music together. We have to dance together. And yes, in full Baldwin fashion, we have to make love. Now, Baldwin was coming in the free love movement, mm-hmm. right? And he saw in the free love movement this idea, right? One thing about free love movement was it made everyone vulnerable to each other. And of course, the AIDS epidemic quashed the free love movement. But one thing about the free love movement is you really realize hilariously that bodies kind of all work the same, or the old saying, when the lights go off, no one knows what color you are. And (laughs) what we've done is we've removed any kind of vulnerability from our lives. We've made it so that our children never have to encounter something. Why don't you go to church? Oh, because that one sermon said that, and I just would never want my kid to hear that. But you've also then removed your kid from Sunday school and interaction with other kids. 
oh, I don't want to go to this place because there's, you know, up the 0.001% of a mass shooting. Yeah, but now you've removed your kids from interacting with other kids who are more likely going to be not like them. So we do need to find ways to return to social life and simply enjoy each other. We've we Something has happened the last 15 years where we really now, for example, think country music is only listened, should be almost, should be listened only by white people. Meanwhile, of course, country music and black culture go all the way back to the beginning. Um, we need multiplication of channels, not diminishment of channels. So we need to all stop watching MSNBC. We need to stop watching Fox News and stuff like that and go back to local news. And what I mean by local news, to give a headline from my childhood in rural Kentucky, Silk Gibson wins this year's pumpkin contest with this marvelous 86-pound pumpkin. That is hilariously how we're going to do it. <laughs> but we've got to get... So when I say local, I mean local. And okay. I like the way Jacob said it. Knowing your neighbors. Loyalty to neighbors instead of loyalty to party. Loyalty to neighbor instead of loyalty to other things. Loyalty to your local politics over the national politics. You know, I say this scandalously, and some students actually critique me for it in my classes. Why is anyone in California caring about the outcome of an election in Georgia? Care who's on the school board in Los Angeles, right? That's going to be what more affects your kids. We vote for judges out here in L.A. Superior Court, and you see all these names. You don't know who they are. Do your homework. Make sure you're electing judges so that when you get wrongfully arrested, you have the right judge. Local. Those things matter more than who the president of the United States is. I get really annoyed when people say, quick example, oh, if Trump wins or if Biden wins, I'm going to leave the country. Like there's ever been a president that has actually had any real consequence at the lowest level of local life outside of declaring war and sending people from your community to war. That's it. But the president can't even do that because Congress does that. So then your representative matters more than who the president is, et cetera. But we've given up the local in exchange for these ideals. Instead, let's invest in the material, the very human lives that we live with and depend upon to live. No one lives by themselves. The pandemic should have taught us that. You have my localist heart palpitating and fluttering with the agreement. So I appreciate the call for the local. I agree significantly. It's been a treat talking with both of you. What is the next book you two or manuscript you two are collaborating on? We have two in the works. We have one that's just of course you do. back to the two of us. We're going to talk about the blues some more. Uh, it's going to be a book on music and philosophy and introducing prophetic pragmatism. Brad infamously says Goodson does not find value in the blues. And I want a full full book-length opportunity to defend myself. <laughs> and then um, with David Dalt, who teaches at Loyola in Chicago and does the Things Not Seen podcast, we are underway with a book on Richard Wardy, which will interest you, Jeffrey. Absolutely. Uh, including Wardy in conversation with 
a kind of basic canon of of continental philosophers and applying applying the fruit of those engagements to questions concerning morality, politics, and religion in the 21st century. So that's what we're working on. Well, again, thank you both for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully you find yourselves at a a brew, local brewery or a local gathering together soon. One of my favorite spots is close to LMU. What's that? What's that place called? The Prince of Wales. Uh, w H A L E S. <laughs> nice. And shout out to Lady Bird Brewery here in Winfield. Thanks for listening to Damn the Absolute. I also want to express my appreciation to all of you that have not only subscribed to Damn the Absolute, but Eraticus as well. Twitter is in a bit of a chaotic position these days, but we're still hanging out there a little bit. You can tweet at us at Eraticus Mag or me at Jeffrey underscore Howard underscore. Pester us with some of your favorite quotes from Damn the Absolute guests or pitch us on episode ideas. And again, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts really goes a long way in helping us foster a community committed to fruitful ideas. See you all next time.